Welcome to Hollywood in Color, where I tell the stories of the stars usually left out of entertainment history, the people of color in front of and behind the camera who have been representing for over a century. I'm your host, Diana Martinez. Last week, we explored the parallels between Dolores Del Rio's rise to stardom and the birth of Los Angeles. Both covered up their Mexican pasts and fabricated a new Spanish history. A Spanish heritage had exotic flair. It was similar enough to Mexico, but still palatable for Americans who feared their neighbors down south. Audiences grew to love Dolores and migrants moved to California in droves. Although she arrived in Hollywood only months after Dolores, Lupe Vélez took a very different path to stardom. Lupe was never not Mexican. Stereotypes of Mexicans associated her with adventure, wildness, and sex. It affected her popularity and the types of roles she played. In this episode, we see how Lupe rose to stardom in Dolores' shadow and how the differences between her and Dolores evolved along simple, fraught lines. Dolores was the good Mexican and Lupe was the bad Mexican. This is episode three of Lupe Vélez and Dolores del Rio, Las Reinas, the Queens of Los Angeles. Lupe's first movie role fell through. Richard Bennett cast Lupe to play the lead in his film, The Dove, but he had second thoughts. 17-year-old Lupe was too young and inexperienced for the role. He went with someone else. So she moved on, She signed a contract with producer Hal Roach at Pathé Studios, where she made two comedy shorts, one with the iconic funny duo Laurel and Hardy. And she was good. But comedy wasn't where you ended up. It was a starting point to bigger and better things, and that meant drama. Epic films, big-budget period pieces where she could be a star, not just the funny girl. In 1927, Lupe's big break finally came. She landed a role in the Douglas Fairbanks film, The Gaucho. Now, Douglas Fairbanks was a big deal. He was kind of like The Rock and George Clooney all in one. He was an action star playing swashbucklers like Zorro and Robin Hood. Married to superstar Mary Pickford, he was also one half of a Hollywood power couple. And he was co-founder of United Artists an independent movie studio backed by unrivaled star power. Co-starring with this living legend was the chance of a lifetime for Lupe, and she knocked it out of the park. In The Gaucho, Lupe played the mountain girl who steals the gaucho's affections away from a literal saint. The reviews for the film were okay, The consensus was that Lupe outshone her co-stars. One reviewer wrote, Lupe scores 100% and is a feminine Fairbanks. 
When it comes to acting, she does not have to step aside for anyone. But there was someone who Lupe was always trying to push out of frame. Dolores. They were pitted as competitors from the beginning. One article from 1928 reads... If Lupa Velez had shone forth in the cinema before Dolores Del Rio caught the public eye, there is no telling to what magnitude of brilliance she might have attained. Yet, if you should meet her, you would find Lupe altogether different from Dolores. She has a sparkling and spicy quality that is not at all similar to the reserved girl from Mexico now so well known. Another writer notes... Dolores is everything that Lupe isn't, but she's equally hot at the box office. Dolores got into the movies a little ahead of Lupe, and naturally, she has a slight edge in popularity. Dolores did herself proud, even though she's shown to better advantage in the more repressed role in the film Resurrection. Maybe that's because Dolores is repressed herself, Down in Mexico, she was the daughter of a fine old Castilian family. In Hollywood, she is the prime favorite of a certain genteel social group. What contrasts these Mexican ladies offer Dolores and Lupe? And that's how the press described them their entire careers. Dolores was the restrained one, and Lupe was the menace from Mexico, the Mexican monsoon, California's tropical storm, the hot baby of Hollywood, the Mexican wild kitten, a howling hot tamale, the Mexican pepper pot, a hot tomato, paprika on chile con carne, and the Mexican spitfire. According to these nicknames, Lupe was temperamental and volatile like the weather. She was aggressive and playful like a baby animal. And she made people, men especially, uncomfortable and hot like sweat-inducing spicy food. Exoticized language was used to describe foreigners often. But Dolores wasn't objectified in quite the same way. She wasn't made strange in the same way. Unlike Dolores, Lupe had no one guiding her image early on. This played a large factor in the creation of Lupe's persona. Studios shuttled her back and forth. Her image had no protection, and her career had very little direction from her manager. Two days before shooting her first movie, Lupe signed a contract with manager Frank A. Woodyard. Woodyard's commission was 25% of her earnings. Lupe wasn't making much, and even back then, 25% was an exorbitant amount to pay to an agent. Soon after filming The Gaucho, Lupe revealed she was underage when she signed the contract, which made it legally void. Woodyard claimed she was lying. He went to the California Supreme Court and attempted to stop her from making any films until they settled the matter. Their fight dragged on for months. Finally, in 1928, the court released Lupe from her contract. But that whole time, Lupe was on the sidelines. 
So after the debacle, she took as many roles as she could. She made the film Stand and Deliver, Lady of the Pavements, and Wolf Song. These early films were a testing site for Lupe to try out different character types. Every actress was a type. American actresses had a greater range of types to choose from, but they were also subject to typecasting. Lupe's early roles were limited in part by her looks. She had dark hair that photographed black. She was very small, and though light-skinned, she had a visibly darker complexion than the blonde girls next door. Studios didn't see her as American. She always played another race or ethnicity. After playing an Argentinian mountain girl, she played a Greek peasant, a Spanish dancer slash lady of the night, and the daughter of a wealthy Spanish, maybe Mexican, family living in the American Southwest. 1929's Wolf Song was the second and last time she would play Spanish. And as she appeared more frequently in the press, she would also rarely play wealthy. This was due to a few things. Though Lupe was from a well-to-do family, they lost most of their money during the Mexican Revolution. Some columnists called her high-born, while others emphasized her impoverishment after the war. There were also questions about her family, her mom in particular. Reporters insinuated that Lupe's mother wasn't a retired opera singer, but a former burlesque performer, which was code for prostitute. In 1982, decades after Lupe's death, Bud Schulberg, the son of producer B.P. Schulberg, wrote a memoir about growing up around 1920s Hollywood legends. He wrote, Lupe's mother had been a walker of the streets. Lupe herself made her theatrical debut in the raunchy burlesque houses of the city. Stage door Juanitos panted for her favors and Mama Veles would sell her for the evening to the highest bidder. Her price soared to thousands of pesos. This is so inaccurate. But it isn't surprising that this was the story Schulberg learned as a young man. Americans didn't know Revista Theater and its origins in French Review, and there were places where scantily clad dancing happened, but Lupe and the other tiples were respected in Mexican society. They weren't whores, they were icons. But this lack of cultural competency on the part of a lot of Americans created specious connections between Lupe, the dancer, and the low life. Audiences were trained by studios to forget the distinction between character and actor. And really, in the business, actors were thought of as studio property. Studios had so much control over actors that they rewrote childhoods, they created romantic relationships, and planted rumors in the tabloids. A great star happened when there was continuity between who they played on screen and who they supposedly were off screen. Clara Bow was cool and sexy, and she played flapper girls who danced and had fun. Marlena Dietrich was distant and glamorous, and her films showed a cavalier attitude towards men. In 1929, Lupe had a featured role on the film Lady of the Pavements, where she played a dancer who was a lady of the pavements. 
a streetwalker. This dovetailed perfectly with rumors of her scandalous past. With little image management in these crucial first years, this type stuck. This is who audiences thought she was. For a while, this worked in her favor. Fans and co-workers thought she was hilarious and crude and a down girl. Even in the 1920s, people wanted to laugh at the prissiness and elitism in Hollywood, and Lupe loved joking about that kind of stuff. She took pleasure in cussing, making innuendos, and saying silly and salacious things, she said. To act like everyone else, is that what they call a lady? Then I am not a lady. But it became a lot. There was a backlash that only intensified as her stardom rose. There were rumors that Lupe refused to wear underwear on set and flashed everybody. That she frivolously spent all her money. She was described in infantilizing language, as if she was a helpless baby or a comedic spectacle. She was called violent. Lupe's tantrums were well-documented, well, most likely well-fabricated. And all these things fed into American fears of racial and cultural difference. Lupe was loud, she was irrational, and she was out of control. But what remained most threatening was her sexuality. In January 1929, Lupe gave an interview that was headlined The Love Life Story of Lupe Velez. The swirly script was punctuated by four floating heads of actors she was rumored to have dated. Al Jolson, Charlie Chaplin, Nils Astor, and Tom Mix. The story begins with a quote from Lupe where she addresses head-on the rumors about herself, but also gives people more to talk about, maybe. She says, I am a flirt. I know it. Whenever I see a man, there is something in here. Lupe pounded both fists on her breast, which makes me winkle my eyes at him. I cannot help myself any more than you can help yourself from breathing. Sometimes I say I will never flirt again. I sit around. I grow sick. When I cannot flirt with some men's, I get a fever. But I am a good girl. People say many things which are not kind and which are not good about Lupe. Bah, I pay no attention. I know I am good, so I do not worry. Lupe's candor is refreshing and relatable. Remember, she's in her early 20s, and like someone young, she makes claims to self-awareness. She is a good girl, despite what everyone says. But she doesn't seem very aware of how easily her words can be taken out of context. Is she naive? Does she do it intentionally? It's hard to say. Throughout her career, Lupe remains candid, which is admirable, seeing as how often this comes back to bite her in the butt. Another anecdote in this same interview gets twisted up later to align with the unkind things people say of her. The interviewer, Ruth Beery, doesn't include the questions she asked Lupe, but something prompts the following story. My first kiss, Lupe says. Oh, for my first kiss, you would have to go back to when I was seven. I used to sell my kisses for pictures of movie stars. The boy who could get me the most pictures of the women who play in the pictures 
For him, I save all my best kisses. Then she clarifies. But that is all I have ever sells is my kisses. And kisses, bleh, what do kisses matter? In 1932, New Movie Magazine used this same story to disturbingly claim Lupe's hypersexualization had its origins in her race. Even at the tender age of 12, Lupe had sex appeal, and no race is as quick to recognize this quality as the Mexican. The house was surrounded by boys of all ages who whistled in various keys. For Lupe, these young swains were simply a means to an end. She had an absorbing curiosity about motion picture stars, and she discovered, young as she was, that her kisses were marketable. She would bestow a chaste salute on a masculine cheek in exchange for a picture of a star or a colored ribbon to wind her dark braids. Thus, men became her tools to gain the things she wanted, and the house was besieged with them. Lupe's innocent story of a child's playground dealings becomes a story about a young woman who manipulates men with her body. similarly admonished for her supposed relations with men was Clara Bow. Bow's on-screen persona was unlike anything anyone had seen before. She was free and charismatic and modern and sexy, but Bow's on-screen persona soon led to rumors about her wanton sexuality off-screen. For fans, this was easy to believe because she was adventurous and a flapper and gorgeous, Surely she was willing to hand it over if her characters were, or else how could she play them so convincingly if she wasn't morally questionable herself? Clara's origin story, growing up poor in Brooklyn with a mentally ill mother, fed into ideas that she would do anything to get ahead. Her association with producer B.P. Schulberg and his low-budget studio Preferred Pictures was enough for Hollywood insiders to scrutinize her seemingly meteoric rise to stardom. Actress Louise Brooks wrote in her autobiography, Schulberg's organization was the cheapest, and his reputation for the sexual abuse of young actresses who worked for him was the worst in Hollywood. Consequently, coming from the Brooklyn slums to work for Ben automatically labeled Clara a cheap little whore. The narrative of Clara's childhood, which was constantly reiterated in fan magazines, preyed on the unconscious bias of women in poverty to naturalize the idea that, of course, she would use sex to get ahead. Clara was white. She made a lot of money. She was a Hollywood darling. And even she had a hard time navigating Hollywood's strict codes of conduct. Lupe didn't have the privilege of whiteness, class status, or economic agency to say fuck it without consequences. Lupe's sexual availability was tied to her Mexicanidad, which she couldn't cover up with roles as the good girl or fix through marriage. She didn't have a way to attenuate the threat that she posed to white femininity. And Lupe's relationships with white men only exacerbated rumors about her powers of seduction and corruption.
Lupe's first high-profile Hollywood romance was with actor Gary Cooper. They met on the set of the 1929 film Wolf Song. The film is set in New Mexico. Gary plays Sam, a restless farm boy currently working as a beaver trapper. He meets Lola, played by Lupe, who is a high society woman about town. They meet at a dance and they fall madly in love. But they are caught mid-kiss by Lola's father. He threatens Sam, but nothing can stop the couple from being together. They run away and elope. Then Sam gets restless again. He wants adventures in the outdoors. The wolf song calls him. He leaves. He regrets it when he's shot by a Native American, and he returns to Lola wounded and succumbs to his future as a husband. The chemistry between Lupe and Gary sparked rumors of romance and almost immediately marriage. They certainly didn't move that fast, but Gary was smitten. He had a thing for sassy girls. He dated Clara Bow, after all. And Lupe was over the moon about her Gary. Anonymous tips were sent in to fan magazines about Lupe on set, loudly proclaiming her love for him. The press attempted to paint them as opposites. Gary, the reserved cowboy, versus Lupe, the Mexican menace. But really, they were very similar. In private, Gary was a practical joker. He loved fast cars, and Lupe was driving around in a souped-up Cadillac. After shooting Wrapped on Wolf Song, Gary gave Lupe two eagles as a gift. This strange token of affection was kind of perfect for Lupe. They got each other. Her and Gary traveled together and spent time outdoors, and Lupe, the girl who grew up on a big Mexican ranch, was right at home doing cowboy things with Gary. There was a series of stories about Gary and Lupe's teary departures as one went off to shoot on location and the other stayed behind. Their long-distance romance was written about like fan fiction. One writer described in detail, too dramatic to be true, how the cold white vestibule separated them from one last kiss goodbye. You can imagine a young fan reading about these moments and swooning. Lupe and Gary had that Hollywood kind of love. Over the course of their relationship, these kinds of anecdotes began to turn against her to add up to a narrative about Lupe as inappropriately vocal about their relationship. She was too in love. She was a little obsessed, a little possessive, just too much. And this was the power dynamic between the couple, as it was written in fan magazines and sold by the studio. Wolf Song was advertised as Gary's movie, even though Lupe was the bigger star and made four times his salary. Gary had had a few onset romances, it was his M.O. before and after Lupe. Yet Lupe was painted as a seductress, or as the needy child that wouldn't let go. One particularly scathing piece about the relationship described it like so. Gary, when he played opposite Lupe in Wolf's Song, blushed under his makeup, but smiled at her in the manner of a bachelor uncle 
who is appearing in public with a particularly precocious and embarrassing niece of six. Lupe was often described like this. She was a grown woman with grown woman desires, and she was also a child who didn't know when playing around had gone too far. Even her interviews took on a strange in-between tone. Reporters would write her speech phonetically, exaggerating her accent in the process. I love Gary became, I love Gary, or I love him. It was like they were transcribing baby talk, and it had the effect of being both comical and sexualizing. But it could have been worse. Lupe's romance with Gary protected her to some extent from really egregiously racist comments. When they first started dating, the press didn't seem very concerned about it being an interracial romance. The only person who wasn't enamored with the couple was Gary's mother. Alice. She really hated Lupe. It was openly known that Alice was the one preventing Gary from marrying the vulgar and tasteless Lupe. Mama Cooper even brought around girls, white girls, to the house hoping to push him onto someone else. Alice had read the reports that Lupe threw wild parties and hung around boxing rings shouting at the fighters from the stands. She probably believed the rumors about Lupe's dancing resume. She heard this story that Lupe was so jealous of Marlena Dietrich, Gary's next co-star, that she started a kerfuffle on set and may or may not have publicly sniffed Gary's crotch to see if she could smell Marlena's perfume. Gary's mom cared about appearances, and Lupe, she thought, was tarnishing her son's image by corrupting him and making all the details of their relationship visible. But Gary co-hosted these parties, he joined her at the ring, and he was also insecure about Lupe cheating. There were rumors that the relationship was abusive, that Gary hit Lupe and Lupe hit back. Some press tried to play it off like Gary disciplining a naughty child. Other magazines claimed Lupe, violent by nature, riled him up. In both scenarios, the press said, she asked for it. In 1931, Gary had a breakdown. He lost 30 pounds, he was jaundiced, he had depression, and he wanted out of Hollywood. His mother insinuated his bad health was Lupe's doing. Alice took this opportunity to distance him from Lupe for good. She booked a trip to Europe for five weeks. There's this story about what Lupe does next that I find unbelievable. It was widely reported in fan magazines, but as I've tried to point out, they wrote whatever they wanted. But the story has stuck around. It's pretty legendary. In a 1979 biography on Gary, author Hector Arce tells it like so. Gary was at the train station on his way to Europe. Lupe was furious that he was going to go without her. Gary was there talking to a couple of people. Lupe sneaked around and saw him. He was standing right outside the train. She shouted, Gary, you son of a bitch. Then, 
she shot him. Well, she missed. By that time, Coop had slammed the door and was inside. The train pulled out, but a hell of a lot of people saw some woman had taken a shot at Gary Cooper. Gary and Lupe were over after three years. When Gary came back from Europe, he did the rounds at the magazines trying to repair his image. In October 1932, he appeared in a spread in Photoplay magazine headlined, I'm through being bossed. The writer paints Gary as a loyal man torn between the women in his life and his own desires. Marion Leslie writes, When that fiery little Mexican swooped upon his heart, there began a stormy time for Gary. The worshipping mother, deeply concerned about the results of this impetuous romance, and the primitive child woman who enthralled him could never, never have reached a glimmering of mutual understanding. Although I think he tried at first, Gary loved them both and their feminine tug-of-war over the mastery of his affections must have torn him nearly to ribbons. Right next to this paragraph, there's a picture of Gary and his mom smiling proudly. The caption reads, Gary's mother is a charming conservative woman. Loving her boy, she tried her best to shield him, but Gary discovered that he had to do his thinking for himself. The one thing that Lupe and Gary did seem to agree on about their breakup was that his mom was, at least in part, responsible. In her own interview in January 1932, Lupe had no qualms about blaming Alice as the one insurmountable obstacle in her and Gary's relationship. Now, I have to read this to you because it's some really great writing. The interview begins with Lupe singing a love song. And her voice breaks into a dreadful note of pain. Writer Gladys Hall asks, Lupe, what is this all about? What is the real explanation of your break with Gary? You've been lying about it because you love him and you know you do. And I'm just going to keep reading. The room was deathly still. The magnificent madcap turned toward me with a face hard to recognize as Lupe's. I felt that I had torn a mask away and I was actually afraid to look at what I had done. But then through the still room hurtled two words, sharp as shrapnel, bitter and burning. His mother. It doesn't stop there. And then Lupe began to talk. Her voice was dull but persistent. The pain in her words made her usually mobile features rigid. Her eyes were dry, with the dryness of despair. I hope she never cries the tears that I have cried, says Lupe. I hope she never knows the suffering I have known. I don't hate her that much. She said I'm not good enough for him. I know that. But I tried to make him happy. I did make him happy. I would have done anything in this whole world for him. There was nothing I wouldn't have done. There is nothing I wouldn't do. It's hard to know how fabricated this interview was because there seemed to be two Lupes. One was lovelorn and wished she could 
fall under a trolley car because she hurt so bad. And another Lupe scoffed at the idea of marriage and claimed she was happily single once again. Maybe with these confessional interviews, Lupe thought she was doing some kind of damage control, showing that Gary and his mother were too close-minded and superficial to see the real Lupe. Or maybe she was happy to be out of a dysfunctional relationship. But Lupe's image would never be the same after Gary. There was too much drama, too many stories that Lupe and the agents she hired couldn't contain. Her image veered further and further into the stereotype of the fiery Mexicana, whose feelings were always at the surface, ready to explode. Writing on Hollywood Latinas, Priscilla Ovalle observes, At the edge of power, that is, whiteness and fame, the Latina star can exercise her agency if she follows the rules. If she proves too unruly, she can be readily contained with increasingly lackluster or stereotypical roles. Lupe was unruly. And Dolores became unruly too. She divorced her husband, had a rumored affair with Edwin Carew, and lost some of that respectability Dolores worked so hard to create. Both of them pushed the boundaries in their personal lives too far, and Hollywood pushed back. In the next episode, we explore Lupe and Dolores' careers in the 1930s. During this decade, they shone brilliantly, and just as quickly, their stardoms waned. This episode of Hollywood in Color has been produced, edited, and narrated by me, Diana Martinez. All artwork for the show was designed by Shelby Mooring. Every episode of this podcast is heavily researched. If you want info on the books, articles, and sources I used, check out the show notes. There, you'll also find info about the theme song and other music used in this episode. If you liked this episode and want to keep up with what's next, follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at hwoodincolor. And with that said, I can't wait to tell you another chapter of our story next week.